Hey there, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast, Walking with Dante, a podcast that has slow walked all the way to the end of Canto 3 of Purgatorio, and I've listened to a couple old episodes recently, and I've noticed that my voice starts out low, and as I get more and more excited about each episode, it gets higher and higher and higher, and <laughs> it cracked me up listening to old episodes. Sorry about that, that I'm not keeping a consistent tone. I can't help it. I'm very passionate about this stuff. Manfred's speech in Canto 3 of Purgatorio is just astounding. We've been here with Manfred walking along. We've seen the gash in his eyebrow, the gash on his chest. We've heard him ask Dante to go back and tell the true story of how come he's in Purgatory and not burning in hell with his father among the heretics. And now we're going to actually hear what that true story is, and it is more shocking than even the fact that Manfred himself somehow ends up among the redeemed. We're at lines 121 through 145, the back of Canto 3 of Purgatorio. This is my English translation. You can find it on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. You print it off. You can read it there. You can drop a comment on this episode. We can talk more about this episode there, or you can find me on any number of social media feeds, including, uh, yes, believe it or not now, TikTok, in which I am taking on a poem a week. I've done some Dickinson. i got a lot of stuff ahead. For now, this is Purgatorio, Canto 3, lines 121 through 145. Manfred continued on, my sins were indeed horrible. But the infinite goodness has such wide open arms that they can take back all who return to them. The shepherd of Cosenza was sent out to hunt for me by Clement. If he'd read correctly this aspect of God, the bones of my body would still lie near the head of Benevento's bridge under a marker of those heavy stones. Now they've been washed by the rain and moved by the wind out beyond the kingdom, close to the Verde's banks, where he took them with his torches snuffed out. No one is so lost, even by the maledictions of those men, that eternal love can't come back to them as long as hope shows even a hint of green. Truth be told, whoever dies excommunicated by the Holy Church, even if they repent right at the last minute, has to remain outside on this bank thirtyfold for the amount of time spent in their rebellion, unless the sentence gets cut short by good prayers. See now if you can lighten my load by revealing to my good Constance where you have seen me and how long I am still kept out. For a great deal is gained here by means of those who are back over there. Now we know that Manfred, somehow his body was moved under papal aegis, that it is now, his bones are just being washed by the rain, and they're out in the open. We know now that excommunication is not a final answer to anything, and we also know that the living can have an effect on the dead. Let's look at this straight through from the top to the bottom and then talk about some of its implications and then a larger question about the implications of Canto 3 of Purgatorio. 
Manfred starts out, my sins were indeed horrible. And you should know that first bit where I said Manfred continues. That's not here. I put that in for just this episode of the podcast. Manfred is just continuing on talking from the last time. He says, my sins were indeed horrible, but the infinite goodness has such wide open arms that they can take back all who return to them. This is the moment in which we see Manfred humbled. We see him admit to his great sins. I told you last time, everybody else would be shocked (laughs) that Manfred is here. And you'll note that those sins, sexual profligacy, regicide, parricide, fratricide, all the things that Manfred was accused of doing, you'll see that Dante mentions them nowhere except in this line. My sins were indeed horrible, and it's undifferentiated. But what is so interesting here for me is that Manfred is humbled, the great grasper for the throne of Sicily, the the last of the great German leaders of Sicily. This guy is no longer a leader. In fact, remember, he and the other sheep make Virgil and Dante go in front of them. He's tentative with those sheep. He may be the most noble one stepping out of the fold, but he's very much humbled. And I think we should see this as part of the overall rhetoric of the passage. These great figures have been brought low. In Inferno, the great figures still want to make claims for their greatness. Think about Capaneus stretched out there on the burning sands and saying, Jove's lightning bolts don't hurt me. Think about Ulysses, who is still trying to justify his search for the other side of the globe. Here, what we see is a great leader, Manfred, no doubt, a great leader, a great military leader until he was felled by Charles of Anjou, but a great military leader at Monteperti, Here we see this great leader humbled and brought low. And in fact, Dante, wow, Dante in the lead with Virgil walking ahead of the flock. We turn then to Manfred's version of the story, the shepherd of Cosenza. That would be the archbishop of Cosenza in Calabria uh, was sent out to hunt for me by Clement, Pope Clement, if he'd read correctly this aspect of God, that is, the arms take back all who return to them, the bones of my body would still lie near the head of Benevento's bridge under a marker of heavy stones. Let me stop right here into Manfred's story about what happens to him after his death, his body after his death, and just say there is one translation quibble here, and it has worried commentators for hundreds of years, and that's what I translated this aspect of God. It's faccia, and the question is, is faccia, if he'd read correctly, this face, faccia of God? In other words, if the Archbishop of Cosenza, and potentially Pope Clement as well, if they had read right what was on God's face and knew the 
mercy of God. They wouldn't have done this injustice to my body. But you can also translate that as page, this page of God, as if it's a written record or a revelation. I like the attitude of page, the aspect of page. I like that in the text because Virgil has made this whole thing about revelation and the quia earlier in Canto 3. But I translated it as aspect. <laughs> basically because I couldn't make up my mind. You should just know that the aspect of God, the faccia of God, is it is God's face or some piece of God's revelation on a page. It's unclear, and it has bedeviled commentators for forever. Okay, so let's talk about the historical record here. In honest-to-God historical truth, Charles of Anjou had Manfred's corpse buried in unconsecrated ground. Remember, Charles of Anjou kills Manfred near the Benevento Bridge in an ambush skirmish. Ambush is a little bit too too much of a word, but in a skirmish amongst the troops, and Manfred is killed. And apparently, Charles of Anjou has Manfred buried in unconsecrated ground. Later chroniclers... Now we're starting to get into people who are writing many years later and are starting to add details to it. Later chroniclers claimed that Manfred's loyal soldiers passed by his corpse and added stones onto the top of it, thereby building up a big cairn of stones over his body. That may or may not be true. But what is true is is that the rest of this story is a hundred percent Dante's invention. There is no historical backing that the shepherd of Cosenza somehow went out, uncovered Manfred from those cairns of stones, dragged his body out somewhere, left it open to the elements near the River Verde's banks, That Archbishop of Cosenza must be a really bad guy because he does all of this body removal with the torches snuffed out. This is clearly to tell us that this is all nefarious activity. I mean, they they go and steal Manfred's body in the dark and dump it out somewhere in the wilds. This guy is so bad. We know the act isn't honorable because they don't even light their way. They go in the dark to do it. So we're being really set up to see this as a bit of churchly overreach, a bit of churchly dastardly doing. All of that is of Dante's invention. Why? Well, that's a great question. Why? Why does Dante feel the need to flesh out this story? For one thing, it helps us build sympathy for Manfred. It rather suppresses the common rumors of Manfred's libertine ways and his homicidal acts. So by making it, oh, your body, it was unearthed and it was dug up. It doesn't even have a good grave anymore. It does, especially in a medieval context, bring us more into sympathy with Manfred. Furthermore, It creates a more extended story that makes his inclusion with the redeemed even more surprising. He was put in non-consecrated ground. Most theologians would tell you that you can't end up in the 
good part of the afterlife if your body is somehow not in consecrated ground. This was a huge problem in the Crusades, a huge problem of leaving behind the dead crusaders in quote-unquote unconsecrated ground. This bothered everyone because the idea was you got to have your corpse in consecrated ground so when the resurrection comes, it can come out of some place that's been already Bless. If Manfred is just out in the open somewhere, it's even more surprising. It's surprising that Charles of Anjou put him in unconsecrated ground and he's here. And then if his corpse is just nowheresville, it's really shocking. But also, building out this story about what happens to Manfred's body allows Dante those unbelievable six lines. No one is so lost, even by the maledictions of those men, meaning popes and archbishops, that eternal love can't come back to them as long as hope shows even a hint of green. That hint of green would be that last-minute repentance that he told about. Truth be told, whoever dies excommunicated by the Holy Church, even if they repent right at the last, has to remain outside on this bank 30-fold for the amount of time spent in their rebellion. We'll come back to that 30-fold in a minute. That's all shocking stuff. The church doesn't have the final say. You, even if you are excommunicated, can repent on your own. Think about this for a second. Manfred's on the battlefield. He says that he repents at the last minute, which means he doesn't take the last Eucharist. He doesn't take extreme unction. He doesn't repent to a priest. He doesn't confess his sins. All those sacraments are not there. All he does is repent at the last second while hope has a hint of green, and he ends up here. Furthermore, no sacraments and he's been excommunicated, and he's here. This is why I think Dante builds out this story about his body, because it is leading to this grand shock that my personal response, man, I'll take it out of me, Manfred's personal response is enough to get him into the redeemed part of the afterlife. <laughs> sounding very Protestant, no? It's sounding it's sounding very modern, no? It's sounding very like the individual has some kind of agency over the individual's own fate. And let me say, n- no stepping on anyone's toes, no matter how religious you are, let me say that for a long time, the church was very much invested in the fact that you don't have of final agency over your fate. And yet it's given to Manfred here all aspects and all indicators to the contrary. Let's come back to that 30-fold. He says that, that if you're excommunicated, even if you repent at the last moment, no matter when you repent, you have to spend... 30-fold amount of time you spent in rebellion here on the bottom part of purgatory, right at the very bottom. Why 30? Dante makes up a number, and there's a number of answers for this. There are numbers given in the Aeneid, but they're not 30 for when souls have to wait to cross with Karen, but again, it's not 30. I think for me, the best answer to this is that Dante is picking up a bit from the 
quote-unquote Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures, the Tanakh, he's picking up a bit about Moses' death. And there, the claim is that when Moses died, the children of Israel mourned for him for 30 days. And for me, this seems like the most uh, logical answer for the the number 30. I mean, Dante could have said anything here, right? Manfred could have said, you have to wait 100-fold. You have to wait 40-fold. You have to wait 27-fold. You have to wait 9-fold out here. Dante could have picked any number. He picked 30. I think it might do well to think about the 30 days that the children of Israel mourned the death of Moses. I have seen some people claim that 30 represents the number of years Jesus was alive before he started his public ministry. So just as Jesus was kind of in, mm, this is too much to say, but kind of in no man's land for 30 years before he started his public ministry with his baptism by John the Baptist, that in the same way, these people have to be in no man's land, the very bottom of purgatory, for a very long time, matching those 30 years that Jesus spent, but this time one year for each of their years that they were excommunicated. I don't know. The the Moses thing seems closer to me for some reason in my gut, but it is interesting that Dante makes up this number, 30-fold, that the excommunicated have to wander around the very bottom of Mount Purgatory unless something very important happens. Unless, Manfred says, the sentence gets cut short by good prayers. Ah, now we know why he's so interested in Dante still in the body. Dante can pray. Dante can go back amongst the living and offer prayers for the likes of Manfred. See now if you can lighten my load, Manfred said, by revealing to my good Constance, that's his daughter, not his grandmother, but his daughter Constance. I told you there were two Constances in this passage. That's his daughter. Revealing to my good Constance where you have seen me, in other words, <laughs> I'm not with dad, where you've seen me and how long I am still kept out. So way down here at the bottom, how long I haven't even been allowed the first ascent of the mountain. And then he ends with an aphorism for a great deal is gained here by means of those who were back over there. Oh, he ends like Virgil does in an aphoristic statement, which brings up the whole matter of the structure of Canto 3. But let's put that aside just a minute, and let's talk about praying for the dead. This is really actually a question about the relationship of purgatory and the living. And I want to offer you two views on this. And one is a very negative view and one is a more positive view. I would tend to lean toward the negative because that's who I am. But I also wanted to give this a positive spin. Here's my thesis. This all has to do with what happens to the dead in a religion that is founded on martyrdom. Certainly, Jesus is the first martyr in Christian theology. But then, of course, during Rome's imperial stage, there were the Christian martyrs. And much of the faith turns on these Christian martyrs. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but there is now a question about how much martyrdom actually occurred amongst Christians and how much was put forward in story form by early church fathers. 
I am not here to debate that question, and I don't care whether the people were actually martyred by the hundreds or whether stories were made up about martyrdom. It doesn't matter. Still, the basis of the faith is martyrdom. So here's my thesis. If the basis of the faith is about martyrdom, what do you do with the rest of us who aren't martyred? What do you do with run-a-mill Joe over here, the miller, the t- in medieval terms, the brewer, the miller, the tailor? I mean, what do you do with them? I, for gosh sake, the knight or the prince, what do you do with them? They're not martyred. How do they enter the afterlife? The negative way to look at this is that essentially purgatory is the way that the church is colonizing the redeemed part of the afterlife. The church cannot colonize the redeemed part of the afterlife if martyrdom is a direct ticket to heaven. The church has nothing to say about it. If I get martyred for my faith, I go straight to heaven. The church has no role in this, ta-da, except to notice me. But otherwise, there's no role in it. Once you move away from martyrdom, you get the church creeping into the afterlife, and there is a way that they can start to manipulate See, I told you it was going to be negative. Manipulate the faithful playing into their doubt. Again, religion founded on martyrdom. So was mom? Is she damned? Is she saved? Mom just, you know, baked bread and died. So, wow, what a hideous medieval life. Baked bread and died. Okay, anyway, mom did that. So where is she? So playing off my doubt, the church begins to colonize the afterlife to wring money out of me, to wring prayers out of me, and to control me in some way. Purgatory is the church's reach into the redeemed part of the afterlife. Or we can put it a positive spin. This is a way to find hope beyond catastrophe. You don't need to be a martyr to be redeemed. But you get there because the living still remember you and pray for you and offer offerings and offer money so that you can get on in the afterlife. So this is the positive spin. This is getting a hopeful position out of catastrophe without having to go to the apocalyptic end of martyrdom. You still have martyrdom sitting back there as the foundational ethic, the foundational virtue of the church. So you still have that, but you've got to figure out a way to give hope to normal people. And this hope to normal people then is purgatory, a way that the living can contribute to the ongoing benefits of the dead. Let's talk about this entire canto for a moment, because it's just such a curious canto, canto three. It's unbelievable. Just think about the way this canto works. Virgil's body has been moved from where it was first placed, where he died, to his tomb. Manfred's body has been moved. So we have two dispersed bodies. What you're saying then in this canto is your eternal resting place doesn't determine your afterlife. Virgil's put in a really nice tomb. It's not a Christian tomb, but it's put in a really nice tomb. The niceness <laughs> of your cenotaph or your mausoleum doesn't determine where you're going to be in the afterlife. And it's so interesting that both Virgil and Manfred talk about their bodies being moved. It's also so curious because Virgil begins the canto so undignified, running away. And 
And then we get this extremely honorable, dignified Manfred who steps forward and tells his story in ways that poor Virgil can't do as this old man running. Virgil undignified, Manfred humbled, but exalted. I mean, we feel Manfred's greatness in this passage, even though he's been humbled from his earthly life. And furthermore, Virgil ends in an aphorism and Manfred ends in an aphorism, thus linking them even closer together. There's a really big irony in this canto. Virgil says, be content with the quia. Be content with what is. We talked about this endlessly. And he addresses it to all of humanity because, you know, I mean, otherwise you have to learn things only through revelation. And then Virgil hangs his head because he's outside of Christian revelation. And then we find ourselves with a group of souls essentially living in the quiet. Now, not not living in the now. Don't think about this in contemporary terms, but living in the what is as these little sheep going around the bottom of the mountain. And then this is what kills me. Virgil then reveals why Dante casts a shadow. Dante (laughs) is embodied and Virgil reveals that to them and they couldn't know that without Virgil saying that. Virgil is a mechanism for revelation, and he just said, oh, humanity, be content with the quia, because otherwise you need revelation. And then Virgil becomes the channel of revelation in which he tells them who Dante is. It's so ironic. It's just so gorgeously textured. Canto three is a curious place a wild bit that shows us the thorny tangles that purgatory will find itself in. And trust me, the ones ahead are thornier yet. But for now, let's just read the passage. I'm going to go all the way back to line 103 and read Manfred's entire speech. And one of them began... Whoever you might be, as you go along, turn your face back toward me. Consider whether you ever saw me back over there. I turned toward him and stared hard. He was gorgeous and blonde with noble features, although one of his eyebrows had been slashed through by a blow. When I courteously replied that I'd never seen his face before, he said, Okay, check this out. He showed me a gash at the top of his chest. Then he smiled and said, I'm Manfred grandson of the Empress Constance. So I beg you, when you return, to go to my beautiful daughter, mother of the honor of Sicily and Aragon, tell her the truth, no matter what else is said. After I had my body shredded by two fatal stabs, I, wailing, gave myself back to the one who pardons so willingly. My sins were indeed horrible, but the infinite goodness has such wide-open arms that they can take back all who return to them. The shepherd of Cosenza was sent out to hunt for me by Clement. If he'd read correctly this aspect of God, the bones of my body would still lie near the head of Benevento's bridge under a marker of those heavy stones. Now they've been washed by the rain and moved by the wind out beyond the kingdom, close to the Verity's banks, where he took them with his torches snuffed out. No one is so lost even by the maledictions of those men, that eternal love can't come back to them as long as hope shows even a hint of green. Truth be told, whoever dies excommunicated by the Holy Church, even if they repent right at the last, has to remain outside on this bank 30-fold for the amount of time spent in their rebellion, unless the sentence gets cut short by good prayers. See now, if you can lighten my load by revealing to my good Constance where you've seen me, 
and how long I am still kept out, for a great deal is gained here by means of those who are back over there. We've come to the end of Canto 3, and it was quite a journey through it. This is a really remarkable canto in so many ways, but it pales <laughs> in comparison to Canto 4. So just get ready. Brace yourself. I noticed that we're moving a little more slowly than we did in Inferno. That's because there's just so much here. And, you know, my theory, there's no reason to rush. Let's keep moving slowly. Subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss a single episode of it. Read it, like it, do all those things. If you can, write a review on any platform that you're on, no matter what country you're on. That would be great. I see the fantastic number of downloads in the UK. I see that we actually topped the charts in Ireland. Wow, this last week. How is that possible? Top the arch charts? I'm not at the top, but we're up near it. That's incredible stop thank you so much for being on this journey with me the comedy overtakes your life so (laughs) welcome to being overtaken along with me i'm mark scarborough i'll see you for canto four in the next episode of walking with dante